0: The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One.
1: When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B dot com.
2: And so in the bad old days, uh, an airline captain, for example, might be arrogant, autocratic. Um, he didn't listen to others. He, he didn't uh, see the name need for a, uh, a, a team-building approach. And the accident rate reflected that. Uh, you know, back in the early 60s, you know, there was an airline accident that was fatal every few weeks, something we wouldn't tolerate today, something that would be unimaginable today.
0: Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. Really excited today, we have Captain Chesley Sullenberger, otherwise known as Captain Sully, um, who, among many things, is a pilot, a safety expert. Uh, best-selling author, um, I guess you're also a muse for Tom Hanks, which is quite a quite a, uh, quite a feat. <laughs> and uh, thank who you. Knew? For, yes, who knew? That's why you probably became a, a pilot. Uh, thanks for joining. This is really exciting.
2: Great to be with you, Stephen.
0: And you know, we're doing this over the phone, but I wish you were here because we right now at Forbes are overlooking the Hudson, you know, by the Holland Tunnel, right where you made your miracle landing. Um, so that would have been a nice little
2: nice little touch. It's amazing the number of people I've talked to personally who watched us that very day.
0: I mean, it was incredible. So let's let's start right now. and you know, I want to get to that incredible day almost a decade ago. Um, but you know, kind of fill us in. Besides, uh, you know, inspiring, you know, major motion pictures. What have you been up to in the last few years? Um, you know, since that, that crazy uh, that crazy day.
2: Well, I've been able to uh, have amazing opportunities I would not have had in 100 normal lifetimes to meet world leaders, to travel the world, to talk to audiences from Australia to Switzerland and everywhere in between audiences as varied as nuclear power operators, financial risk managers, the military, uh, legal, uh, and many others in in a variety of domains. And what I have found is how similar our challenges are, how many similar issues we're all facing, no matter what business, no matter what domain that we're in. But that really shouldn't be surprising, because what we're all trying to do ultimately is find ways to improve human performance in complicated systems that all involve inherent risk And that's why so many of the things that in aviation we've worked on for four-plus decades, and that I helped to pioneer in important ways, have such great applicability and transferability to the other domains. Uh, it, and I think... My team and I and all the first responders proved in the most dramatic way possible on January 15, 2009, that all the things that we worked on for for decades really work in the real world, even in the most extreme crisis.
3: And excuse us for a moment to thank our sponsors, LifeLock and Amica. More about those sponsors later in the show.
0: What's the link? How do you link together a... uh nuclear reactor operator and a financial risk officer. What what are the, some of the similarities, kind of concrete, that link these sort of high-risk but very different uh, uh, jobs together?
2: Well, we have to have, first of all, uh, what pilots call situational awareness or SA. We have to be able to create and maintain accurately a mental model of our reality. We have to be good risk managers. We have to be mindful. We have to understand uh, our profession, our processes so that we can begin to sensitize ourselves to risk in, in, you know, in aggregate and singly. And we have to understand that bad outcomes are almost never the result of a single fault, mm-hmm. a single error, or a single failure. Instead, they are the end result of a causal chain of events. And when we begin to sensitize ourselves to risk and be able to identify them proactively, we can break that chain and, and avoid a bad outcome. But ultimately, it in every domain, in every organization, it always starts with the fundamentals, with having core values and having leadership committed to them, and then, you know, of course, leadership has the responsibility of creating an environment, a culture in which we all can do our best work. They provide the direction. They provide the resources. They provide the human development. Uh, but it requires also the bottom-up engagement of frontline employees. So it's, it's that yin and yang, the, the leadership culture top-down from the bottom-up engagement that really does make the difference, that sets apart the best from all the rest.
0: So it sounds like being a pilot actually has very little to do with the actual flying and more with the leadership and, I guess, the the assessment of the whole process.
2: Well, the flying part of it certainly provides uh, one with the, the discipline, the diligence, the dedication, you know, to, to be intellectually curious, to be a continuous lifelong learner, uh, you know, to be uh, someone who strives for excellence, to have a deep understanding that in, in every safety or quality critical domain, just good enough isn't.
0: What, and let's go from the beginning here. You always loved flying. What, what drew you to it? What made you want to become um, first a military pilot, then a commercial pilot?
2: Oh, you know, after being a very young child, you know, probably four and a half or so, and briefly toying with the idea of being a, a police officer or a, a fireman, as we called firefighters in those days. By the time I was five, the die was cast. I knew I wanted to be a pilot. I was going to spend my life flying airplanes. And I was fortunate enough actually to be able to do it. You know, My grades were good enough. My eyesight was good enough. I had opportunities I was able to take advantage of at every step of the way, at every juncture. Uh, learned to fly at 16. Got my private license at 17, commercial license at 18. By 20, I was a flight instructor in airplanes and gliders. Um, it's It's been something that's fueled my uh, life my passion all along the way because I was curious and because i i uh, i just would eat and breathe drink sleep flying and it, I couldn't get enough of it I, I wanted to be the most complete pilot ultimately the most complete captain most complete person I could be so I, I think uh, they really uh, it was a good fit for me and I really er- learned early on that when one does not just go to work but but instead follows a calling, mm-hmm. a noble calling, I think, in this case. Um, it, it has lots of benefits. And uh, when one can derive from one's passion, you know, satisfaction for having done a job well, um, then that can lead to providing one with purpose, and ultimately, if you're lucky, with meaning. Um, and when you can derive satisfaction, purpose, and meaning from what you do every day. It, it just doesn't get any better than that.
0: When was your first time in an airplane? Do you remember that, your first ride?
2: Vividly. Um, I was probably about 12 years old, um, and this is back in the early 60s. Uh, my mom was um, a, a member of the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association, mm-hmm. and she had a chance to go from a small town north of Dallas uh, to the Texas State Capitol, Austin, for a PTA meeting. And she let me go with her. And I dressed up in my Sunday best, as we did in those days, and we were on a Braniff Airways uh, Convair 440, a, a propeller engine airliner. Mm-hmm. Took off from Dallas Love Field, going to the, the Austin Mueller Airport. Kind of a cloudy day, but as we took off, and we rose above the ground, I looked out the window, everything down there seemed tiny. You know, the People seemed like ants. Cars looked like toys on a model railroad layout. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was just hooked. I was fascinated by it. Of course, I had already read every book and magazine I could. Uh, so uh, having that first experience you know, began to make real what I hoped to do.
0: Even then, you were well prepared, even before your first flight.
2: Yeah, and you know, like, walking through the Dallas Love Field Airport, I happened to see what people of a certain age might remember, uh, in the early 60s, at the very beginning of the the Mercury space flight program, mm-hmm. the original seven astronauts, um, there was a man who was called the voice of uh, mission control, voice of Mercury control, Colonel John Shorty Powers, and I had seen a photograph of him. And sure enough, that day on the way back, uh, going through Dallas Law Field, I saw him. I recognized him. didn't have a chance, didn't have the nerve to go up and say hello to him. I should have shook his hand. But uh, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. I'll get to go fly on an airplane and see somebody I'd only seen on TV before. It doesn't get any better than that.
0: Yeah, no no wonder you got hooked. And you mentioned, too, you know, besides, you know, you mentioned the the, the famous landing in the Hudson was 40 years in the making, and you told me um, before we started that, you know, besides being a pilot, you were a leader at your company. You really helped change the cockpit protocol, the safety what was When you first started, what was kind of the culture and the problems in the cockpit when you first started, and when, what did you f- actively fix to make that situa- that system better?
2: Well, of course, uh, it was me along with thousands of other pilots nationwide yes. in, in changing the cockpit culture from the bad old days, 40-plus years ago when I started.
0: What were the bad old days? Scare us a little bit.
2: Yeah, we didn't know and understand what we do now. We didn't understand the importance, uh, not just of technical skills but of what I call human skills that some call soft as opposed to hard skills, but I, I don't like that definition. Mm-hmm. These aren't soft as opposed to hard skills, but they're human skills as opposed to technical skills. And so in the bad old days, uh, an airline captain, for example, might be arrogant, autocratic. Um, he didn't listen to others. He, he didn't see the name, need, need for a, uh, a, a team-building approach, and the accident rate reflected that. You know, back in the early 60s, you know, there was an airline accident that was fatal every few weeks, something we wouldn't tolerate today, something no. that would be unimaginable today. Just by point of reference, in this country now, among the large uh, U.S. jet operators, the large airlines, the last passenger fatality in the U.S. on a large jet airliner was in November 2001. Um, it's been over 15 years. Wow, An amazing run of We've made aviation ultra safe. That's not the, the same yet at the regionals, but even there, the last uh, regional crash that was fatal in this country was in February 2009, a, a month after our fatal flight. So, uh, eight years ago.
0: How much has that been with the airplanes and computers, or how much has that been, you know, uh, kept it, it's in been in it's culture. been all
2: bit together, but the human part of it was was substantial. And so, what we realized we needed to do, even as we were making the technology better was we needed to arm our pilots, our flight attendants, and everybody else with these human skills to be able to, to handle distractions, to trap errors, to better communicate, to make better decisions and then communicate them, uh, essentially to, to do what the best pilots and, and flight attendants already did. So what we did was we observed how the best captains led. We observed how the best crews, the best teams operated. And we, we came up with a course to, to teach everybody else how to do it as well. And so that's what we did. And um, I was a pioneer in that effort in my airline. In fact, you know you're a pioneer when you first begin to hear about this idea from others, and you talk about it and develop some, some uh, nascent ideas. And then you approach the pilot union safety committee, and you feel like it's a real chore. You have to work very hard to convince the pilot union safety committee that a new safety initiative is a good idea. Initially, there was some reluctance because yeah, uh, reluctance because they thought this this might be um, you know a threat to what we call captain's authority, to the uh, the captain's autonomy, the ability to make an independent professional judgment. Uh, you know, free of outside influences. Mm-hmm. But in fact, we convinced them that they still have the same statutory responsibility, the same authority, but that we would make them more effective and they'd be able to, to build and lead a team more safely and more effectively if they used these techniques. Uh, and they did. And did so I taught you- the very first such course at my airline. And we began gradually to shift the, cor- the cockpit culture to one of where now when a captain meets a crew for the first time after the introductions are made, you begin to align goals, you have a quick conversation, you talk about a few safety and security specifics, and you create among the team members a shared sense of responsibility for the outcome. Okay. In other words, you take a team of, of people who are already experts, and you tell them how, you, you teach them how to to make themselves an expert team, and those are different skills, but they're critically important, so by by doing that, we were able to solve some of the problems that we had had in the, in the 70s, in particular, some seminal accidents that were fatal, that were caused by by the lack of this kind of a team approach.
0: Like a day in the life of a of a pilot at a, at a major airline that's flying, uh, let's say, New York to San Francisco. Um, what's like taking me through like their day in terms of you know all we do is we see the we see the pilot you know walk on the plane and do some checks and they take off like what is kind of what what's the prep for that and what's kind of the the, the cadence I guess
2: well of course both before they can even become an airline pilot they have to have a lot of knowledge a lot of skill a lot of training in in the profession they have to understand high altitude meteorology high mm. altitude physiology they have to understand aerodynamics they have to understand basic physics they have to learn about the systems in the every part of the airplane, electrical, hydraulic, fuel, and many others. You are assigned to a a trip, often multiple days of flying, with another pilot, a first officer if you're a captain. Um, And at a large airline, where there may be 15,000 pilots and maybe 60,000 flight attendants, it means that we fly all the time with people we've never met before because there's so many of them. And so that's yet another challenge. And so part of this crew resource management, this leadership team building course, is to teach people how to do that. Uh, I mean, imagine that you were going to meet your team for the very first time, never knowing whether that day or the next day or the next week or never, you might suddenly face some ultimate challenge. How would you engage them? What would you say to them? How would you quickly take this collection of individuals and form them into an effective team so that if something awful happens on that very first takeoff, you can work together as if you'd been working together for years. So th- that's those are the skills that we would teach. And so when when you get to the airplane and you meet the rest of the crew members, you have that crew briefing, that four-minute conversation. Uh, and then you begin doing your jobs and you have divisions of duties. You have roles and responsibilities that, that each of us has learned well. Um, and then you begin to do your checks and you divide up the the labor. Often the first officer will do the exterior inspection of the airplane while the mm-hmm. captain checks the weather, checks the fuel load, checks the cockpit, uh, while the flight attendants check all the safety equipment in the cabin. And then when that's all complete, then they will bend again to board the passengers. And as they board, they're observing them, their behavior, of course, in, in the post 9 11 days, We're looking for anything out of the ordinary that meets certain criteria. Uh, we make sure that people who sit in the exit row are at least 15 years old and can understand and speak English mm-hmm. and are willing to perform the duties of opening the overwing access if there has to be an evacuation. So it's it's a, a team that's trained and schooled in the consistent application of best practices. And those best practices that we've learned, that this tacit institutional knowledge we've learned over decades is really the result of learning from failures as well as successes. Every Airline accident uh, is investigated by the National Transportation Safety Board in this country, and from that come formal recommendations for improving safety going forward. Mm-hmm. And so, almost everything we know in aviation uh, we've gotten because someone somewhere died, often many people, to give us that uh, that knowledge. And so, we've learned important lessons at great costs, often literally bought with blood, that we dare not forget and have to relearn. So, part of the the, uh, the challenge of being an, uh, an airline crew member in, in this ultra-safe age for commercial aviation is remembering that how, in spite of how easy we make it look, in spite of how routine and commonplace air travel has become, how el- ultra-safe it is, we can't forget what's really at stake. We can't become complacent. We have to remain vigilant because we never know, you know when we might face some ultimate challenge. And we can't allow our our performance to slip we can't skip important steps or do or or omit certain important checks
3: and we'll be right back after this quick break Are you doing a lot of holiday shopping from your mobile device? You're not alone. Retailers expect 54% of holiday shoppers to visit their sites from mobile devices. Scammers see this as an opportunity to steal your credit card information and other personal data by distributing phony retail apps. Be cautious and only download apps from reputable app stores and read the reviews for any complaints about malware. One in four people have experienced identity theft. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats if you have a problem u.s-based restoration specialists will work to fix it no one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses lifelock can uncover threats that you might miss join now and get 10 percent off with promo code forbes call 1-800-LIFELOCK or go to lifelock.com and use promo code forbes that's forbes to save 10% now
0: and you mentioned that you know a lot of times these flights, it's a it's a professional crew that just met them each other for the first time, and they have hundreds hundreds of lives, uh, maybe even more at stake, and they do kind of a four minute, um, I guess, get uh, ice breaking session or team building session. What tips can you share um, with me to kind of how that happens and how that could be applicable not just to an airline but maybe a freelance team or any in, something
2: in business? Well, I, I I must say that setting the stage for this question. Uh, it's important to note that during much of my career it was a tumultuous industry mm-hmm. um... I, I was hired by the airlines in early 1980 and the airline federal deregulation act had been passed in 1978 uh, and it took a number of decades for all the effects of, of, the, reg- of the deregulation of affairs and schedules to really be felt uh, intensely cost competitive industry at once labor uh, and Mm capital-intensive, very customer-service-sensitive, very safety-sensitive. And so you have a a lot of economic pressure. And then, of course, with the terror attacks of 2001, with SARS, with the... um, downturns in the economy with air, multiple airline bankruptcies, with loss of pensions. Almost every airline employee in the country has lost pensions. Uh, in, in the early 2000s, almost every airline employee took huge pay cuts. I mm-hmm. took a 40% pay cut. My first officer for the Hudson flight, Jeff Skiles, because he'd lost his seat as a captain and was forced back into the right seat as first officer, and then took a pay cut on top of it lost about 50% of his pay. Wow, okay. And so during much of the 2000s when I was a captain, Every week I'd come to work. Part of my biggest challenge was to try to you know, encourage and, and motivate people to remain vigilant, to be dedicated uh, for safety reasons, in spite of how much we'd been, you know, disadvantaged, and we felt like we were the working wounded. So the morale and, and morale even, was low in the industry. The morale was was rock bottom, and so that presented both a challenge and an opportunity. The, the first thing I would do is to acknowledge, talk about the elephant in the room, to essentially start by saying, I I can't get you your pension back, but here's what I can and will do. I would essentially say to them that um, I can't fix all the problems in the world. They're too large, they're too complex, but by federal regulation, I am the pilot in command of this flight, and those are responsibilities I take seriously. So I can affect and I'm responsible for affecting what happens on our flights for the next four days. And I'm determined that um, I will get you what you need as soon as you tell me you need it, whether it's catering or cleaning or maintenance or passenger service, and the sooner you tell me what you need, the the better I'll be able to get it for you. I want to give our passengers the best experience, the safest flight we can, given what we have to work with. Um, And I would remind them, that we had an obligation to do that, that we shouldn't worry only about what, what to do and how to do it. We should remember why we're doing what we do, why it matters that we do these important things and for whom we're doing it, (laughs) for who we owe this to. We owe Mm -hmm. it to our passengers. Their lives are literally in our hands. And so I, I would find a way to connect with them, to, to remind them what was important and why. And then to, to say, I'll, I'll, I'll make a compact with you that, I will take as good of care of you as I possibly can. That's my job as a captain. I'll make sure, for example, that when we get to Pittsburgh late tonight and we're scheduled for a minimum layover, that under the the rules that we were operating then is somewhat better now. The airline was allowed to schedule us for a nine hour, 15 minute break between the time we arrived at the gate Mm -hmm. the night before until we pushed back from the gate in the morning. And because they'd chosen the cheapest hotel that was 45 minutes away, after the passengers had the plane, which takes about 20 minutes, and we collected our gear and walked 10 or 15 minutes to the curb, we might have a long ride in the hotel van. And bottom line, we might get five and a half hours of sleep if we're lucky. And so I'm going to call the hotel and have them send the van as soon as we get to the gate so we're not waiting out in the 20-degree cold uh, for them to come get us. I'll take care of you the best I can. I'll make this trip as good as it can be. And in return, I want you to be my eyes and ears for me. Mm -hmm. I want you to tell me what's happening with the airplane. If if it's something I cannot directly observe because I'm locked in the cockpit now, tell me if you see something that you think is a concern. It's not not just your right to speak up. It's your responsibility to speak up. And so that's how it helped to build the team.
0: Well, and that on that faithful day in the Hudson, um, was this? A, had you worked with your crew before beforehand? Or was this one of your early flights with that complete team?
2: This happened on a Thursday afternoon, near the end of our four days of flying. Um, in fact, it was going to be the last leg, last flight of our four day trip, and we met for the first time on on Monday afternoon, three days before. I had never met Jeff before, um, never seen him before, hmm. and yet had you been allowed to sit in the observer seat? in our cockpit on that flight to the river. Not that you would really have wanted to be there with us, I grant you, and, and watch us work. You'd have thought that we'd been working together like that for years because we had been trained to such a high professional standard, because we knew our roles and responsibilities so well, because we used to such great effect this concise, well-defined aviation vocabulary where a single word can be rich with meaning, a word like brace, for
0: example. Put us in the cockpit right now, uh, I'm sure you've done this a thousand times, but you know, on that day on, on the, the Hudson landing, what was going through your head then? Was it, were you, got, you and Jeff, was it automatic? Was it kind of like in a flow state or was it almost, you know, were you thinking each procedure out?
2: It was a combination of that. It, it was um, a sudden shock. Yeah, let me set the stage for this question as yes. well. <laughs> it, it had been 29 years since I'd been a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And where I'd flown airplanes, you know, near the edge of the flight envelope, yeah. extreme conditions. Uh, it had been, you know, a long time since I had flown airplanes that had mechanical failures more regularly. Over the years, 29 years as an airline pilot, you know, 21 as a captain, you know, the advances had been great, and and travel had become more and more routine. It had gotten more and more rare to be significantly challenged in any way in an airplane. Uh, Um, Up
0: up until then, what was your biggest challenge up until that day?
2: uh, Flying jet fighters in the Air Force in the 70s. You know, a couple of occasions where just through my own miscalculation, I got too close to the ground a couple of times, for example. During the Cold War when we were flying at 100 feet above the ground over the, the rural Nevada desert in war games, you know, going up to 600 knots, where you're covering a nautical mile every six seconds right. in formation. So at the airline world, you work very hard to make everything routine and, and, and easy, predictably reliable. You, you work hard to anticipate and to plan have alternatives for every course of action. You work hard never to be surprised by anything at the airline. And so just 100 seconds after takeoff on this particular flight, we were suddenly confronted with an ultimate challenge, one we'd never anticipated, one we could never have trained for because in our flight simulators you can't practice water landings. The, the data don't exist, they aren't programmed for it. So, yeah. believe it or not, the only training in our in our training, in our our airline training that we'd ever gotten for a water landing was a theoretical classroom discussion. And so the, the, the startle factor was huge. Yeah. And so my body's reaction was huge also. I can remember being aware of that in the first few seconds. I could feel my my pulse shoot up, my blood pressure spike. I sensed my perceptual field narrow because of it and with tunnel vision. It was marginally debilitating. It absolutely in- interfered with our ability to, to process and to perform. But I had uh, enough of a creative reserve. I ha- my, my capabilities were strong enough mentally uh, and technically after so many years of, of uh, trying to be better and better, trying to make every flight better than the previous one, that I had enough reserve yet that I could still behave and perform pretty well even in this sudden crisis. Within two seconds, I'd taken from memory the first two remedial actions I knew would help us the most that we would eventually get to on this three-page checklist that we got mm-hmm. through the first page of a minute later, three, you know, a third of the way through the remaining flight time. Um, so it was a matter of suddenly confronting something we never envisioned, never trained for, having to force calm on ourselves, then impose order on what might have been chaos by imposing a paradigm that we had learned about essentially how to maintain uh, control, set priorities, uh, even in a situation we would never specifically trained for, and then by having the discipline to manage the workload to load shit, because I knew there wasn't time to do everything we really needed to do. Mm -hmm. Instead, I had to focus on on only doing the very most important things, the things that would help us the most, but doing them very, very well. And then having the discipline to ignore everything I didn't have time to do as being only potential distractions and potential detriments to our performance if I tried to do too much. Because I knew that multitasking was a myth. (laughs) I knew that when we think we're multitasking, what we're doing, in fact, is just switching rapidly between tasks, not doing any of them well. I'd seen the data on that, and I knew how important it was to 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 mentally focus, to uh, narrow the focus down to solving the most immediate problems one at a time as quickly as possible, and not trying to do too much, and being willing to sacrifice the airplane to save lives, and, and not worrying about being second-guessed, as I knew I would be, by investigators and by everybody else in aviation. They'd be scrutinizing for years everything I did and everything I said. But I didn't let that knowledge dissuade me from having to do what I had to do. In fact, I'd been a pilot union safety uh, investigator before and participated in an NTSB investigation of another accident a long time ago. So I knew how the process worked, how important, how valuable it is, but that still didn't make it any easier to go through it. I
0: would say that was all running through your head um, in that short amount of time, huh?
2: I didn't specifically think about all those things. There wasn't time for that. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking for about five minutes now about what happened in the first five seconds. (laughs) But um, all those things were in the back of my mind and essentially accessible to help me frame my decision-making in sort of an intuitive way. So it wasn't at all automatic. We didn't just blast through procedures that we had memorized. we had to take what we did know and quickly adapt it and, and apply it in a new way to fit this novel situation. But it certainly helped to have such a vast uh, repository of experience. In, in my first interview ever, when I spoke to Katie Couric in 60 minutes a few weeks after the flight, I, I described that process in this way. I said, one way of looking at this situation and how I handled it was that for forty years? I'd been making small, regular deposits in this bank of education, training, and experience. And on January fifteenth, two thousand nine, the balance was sufficient that I could make a sudden, large withdrawal.
0: Had there been ever like any other big commercial water landings that had has the people survived?
2: Yes, uh, there have been several famous ones, um, starting in the fifties with Pan Am propeller airliners between San Francisco and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a few in Europe and parts of Russia over the years, but not well known. Um, but this, I think because it happened um, in New York, because it happened in the modern digital media age, uh, it was noticed and it became you know, a, a, a very... Remarkable event that
0: people around the world knew the story of. Oh, it was incredible. And I think, um, you know, and the world at that time needed it. I mean, I, I look back and I get emotional thinking about it. I was in New York then and I feel, like you said, it was a freezing January day. And I think the city and the country and the world were still in the throes of the financial crisis. And I think we needed a, a win. And uh, you guys definitely delivered a, a win that day.
2: I think you're right. I think that's why this story still has this enduring power to touch and inspire people is because it happened during the financial meltdown in 8 It seemed as though everything was going wrong and no one could do anything right. I think some people had begun to doubt human nature, wondering if it was really mostly about self-interest and greed. And then this group of strangers rose to the occasion that day, passenger's crew, rescuer's first responders, and made it their mission to see that every life was saved. And I think it, it gave us all hope and a renewed faith in humanity when we much, much needed it
0: and you're speaking of you you were this was uh the whole event was 40 years in the making and making small deposits um to get ready for that day but what made you were you ready for that media onslaught and becoming a a global figure
2: no not at all i I mean uh, but in in my own way without i I, again my life had been a preparation for that challenge of of the flight not knowing when or even if it would happen or what it would be but um my life had also been a preparation for becoming very suddenly a public figure, which was traumatic in its own right, and it required us to quickly grow and and stretch ourselves, reinvent ourselves, to become better at at skills we had and develop entirely new ones that we hadn't had before. But, like I said, my my natural intellectual curiosity, my love of reading, my love of learning, uh, had fueled my passion throughout my flight. Um, I, I was a lifelong learner and so reading a lot and being literate and um, having grown up with a first grade teacher for a mom and a professional for a dad um, put me in an environment in which education was valued ideas were important and striving for excellence was expected of me and so those were all huge advantages so I had a lot of raw material on which to draw uh, to, you know to to do interviews, to, to give talks, um, to write books about, because I, I, I cared about what I thought and what I believed and what I knew and what I didn't and what worked and what didn't. And so I'd done a lot of the hard work, at least intellectually, to to come up with you know, who I am and, and uh, what I believe. before that, or I, I couldn't have done what I've done since.
3: And we'll be right back after this quick break to say support for the Forbes interview comes from Amica Insurance. We're living in the age of the discerning shopper when savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience. Amica is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes and find out why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policies stay with them. One more time, that's meetamika.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amika insurance
0: can't get enough golf For... podcast one is the new home of Golflandia with matthew wiley every monday all season long tune in to hear matt talk predictions tournament recaps and interview guests from in and around the world of pga and euro golf he'll even talk business branding and family life because it all relates to golf download episodes of Golflandia every monday exclusively on podcast one.com the new podcast one app and apple podcasts
1: when you're wearing the right outfit it feels good like good hair day good phone charge to 100 percent good feel that way every single day when you work with a trunk club personal stylist meet your stylist at trunkclub.com that's t-r-u-n-k-c-l-u-b.com
0: what surprised you the most about this newfound publicity or being you know kind of a, a known person and someone that the media and everyone else kind of sought off saw after
2: well the, the biggest of course at first was just the the intensity of it it was so completely overwhelming and so sudden I mean literally as soon as my name was discovered by the press you know there were satellite trucks in front of our house uh, for ten days uh, there were fifty thousand requests in the first few months we had received communications ultimately after a few months from every continent on the planet including a scientist sending us an email from Antarctica. <laughs> so you um, got them all covered. It's—I uh, can't tell you how overwhelming um, that is. The how intense it was. But I guess ultimately, the other surprise is—it's um, amazing what people can learn to do. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's a lot of fun being particularly good at. Something that's difficult to do well, and and that's how I describe my flying career, and now that's how I describe my speaking career, because it, it wasn't my natural temperament. It, it, I wasn't naturally gifted in that way. I had a good vocabulary, but I'd never done much public speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I approached it this new career as a speaker with we the same discipline and diligence I did learning my flying career, and so I I worked very hard. I knew intuitively what I should be able needed to be able to do. And then I solicited, listened to, and acted on brutally honest feedback, uh, just as we debrief our flights, uh, especially in the military, to learn from them and hold each other accountable. Um, and so I held myself accountable, and I got better. And then it becomes a virtuous circle. And then the, the better your, your your skill level is, the, the better are, you are at it, um, the less nervous you are mm-hmm. and the less and nervous you are the the quicker you can improve and then finally it becomes fun and then you're more aware of the audience's reactions as you talk to them and you can do more of what works and less of what doesn't and and make it more conversational and um and more give and take and and then um then it becomes a lot of fun.
0: And besides, kind of drilling and practicing, how else well did you improve? Um, kind of your speaking and stage presence. Did you read a lot? Did you practice? Did you have coaches to kind of help you go through this?
2: No, I didn't use a coach. I, um, like I said, I had a pretty good intuitive grasp of what I should be able to do. But I, what I did do early on is, is watch myself on video, which, which even for professionals is hard to do. I mean, we're all our worst critics.
0: Did life kind of calm down a little bit and get back to normal after the flight, and then? Um, get kind of crazy again when uh, the Clint Eastwood-Tom uh, Hanks-Sully uh, movie came out?
2: Yes, full marks to you for noticing. Uh, absolutely, that it happened. You know, enough time had passed. This story had receded somewhat from the public consciousness, and of course, having a major motion picture in IMAX, uh, writ large in the big screen, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Tom Hanks, sort of, kind of you know, resets the clock and gets it going again. Um,
0: what was that like? Was that? I mean, few few people, few living people, have major biopics made out of them, and few of them are positive. And you know, they could have called this anything. They could have called this Miracle on the Hudson or you know, Water Crash, but they called it Sully. They called it you know, Your Name, which is even more personal. Like, what was this whole experience like?
2: Well, I was actually surprised that that ended up being the title. And early on, when this project uh, was greenlit, I actually questioned them about that. I said. Uh, you know i i'm surprised that this is the title and but their answer made a lot of sense to me they said well almost every other title we could think of would require some kind of explanation uh-huh. um and this didn't and so it it became an eponymous film um, but it was surreal you know i i think uh, handling the the sudden intense worldwide acclaim the notoriety that happened so quickly after the flight and handling this film project experience was easier for my wife and me because well for two reasons first we were mature adults when this happened to us and not you know very young yes so we had a lot more life experience to help us put this in perspective and the second the second thing maybe even the more important thing is that we were never starstruck we understood that people who are famous, who are actors or entertainers, essentially are just doing their jobs. They just have different jobs than yeah. we do, and they have jobs that require them to be famous. Um, so we didn't read too much into it. Uh, we, we didn't believe too much of what we read or heard, either good or bad. Um, and we kind of we tried very hard to stay true to the core of who we are and live our lives essentially the same way, you know. But we did have to very quickly learn to live in some ways a very new kind of version of our lives very quickly as public figures. It, it did require us to to live differently. But in terms of the film, you know, at first it didn't seem real I mean we we of course intellectually knew what it was going to entail but emotionally Mm -hmm. it didn't seem real until Clint came to the house for the first time and uh, a few weeks after the project had begun to get the measure of us to see us in our natural environment before Mm -hmm. he made any casting choices um and he's not doing here he's a very quiet thoughtful guy but but with a clear vision of how to tell a story and so we talked for about three hours at lunch um I told him some stories, and he seemed pleased by the stories and my ability to tell them. And uh, he told me he had his own story. In in, in a way, he was uniquely qualified to tell ours, because in the early 1950s, during the Korean War, he was an enlisted man in the U.S. Army, Mm -hmm. uh, and awaiting his assignment, probably ultimately, to go to Korea. And um, he had gone up to Seattle to see his parents from... uh, Fort Ord near Monterey, California, where he was based. And on the way back, hitching a ride on a Navy airplane, they had to, to ditch in the Pacific a few miles off the coast of San Francisco near Point Reyes. And as it was getting dark, they had to, he and the pilot had to swim ashore through he, what he they later learned was shark-infested waters. They both survived, ultimately. Fortunately, he was a, a lifeguard and swim instructor. <laughs> so <laughs> he was prepared in his own way for that challenge. Um, but uh, yeah, then a few months later, when Tom Hanks was cast, he came to the house and we spent some time going over the script and talking about things. And we didn't at all talk about how he would craft his role. That's his expertise. Mm-hmm. But he did, like Clint, try to reassure us. You know, Clint just said that, I know it's your life story, and but we'll take care of you. Don't worry. Well, we, you know, of course, we weren't worried, but we were very concerned or very interested at every juncture that, that they would tell it. You know, truthfully, in, in a way that was respectful for the story, and they did. But Tom said that he knew that you know, he had a special responsibility because he, before he had played real people still living, like mm. Captain James Lovell of Apollo 13, like Rich Phillips and others. and that
0: Lots um, of captains.
2: Yeah, he's done lots of captains. Um, <laughs> and that uh, he was going to do the best he could, that he realized for some period while the film was very popular, that he and I would be conflated in the public's mind. But that after the film had run its course, I was going to have to go back to living my, the rest of my life, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to screw it up for me. <laughs> and so he was—he felt a special obligation, and he did. He, he did a good job.
0: How do you uh, rate his mustache in the movie?
2: Well, it's good. It's interesting. Um, I had shaved mine off a few years uh, ago, and apparently the, the movie people, even though they had a dossier built, on all of us uh, didn't realize that, and so when we uh, attended one day of filming in Charlotte at the museum where our airplane is, that we flew into the river that day wow. on display to the public intact. I'm glad <laughs> I <laughs> showed up without a mustache, and they were going to film a, a recreation of a passenger crew reunion that happened a few years before, and so they were the make the makeup people were suddenly in a panic. You know, we didn't know he shaved his mustache off. What were we <laughs> going to do? Well, it turned out that they had made and, and uh, uh, perfected a very expensive uh, fake mustache for tom hanks to wear but in fact they were happy with the way his own mustache looked and were able to make it look so he never wore it but they had it on hand so they had me wear this mustache <laughs> they had intended for tom to wear it to look like me for me to wear it to look like i I uh, looked in 2010.
0: Always prepared.
2: So they were ready and we did that and it all worked out. But uh, it was quite a process. It was fascinating to see how movies are made and, uh, and the hundreds of people in Clint's army who who make the movie magic happen. Um, at one, uh, We were only in the set a couple of days. Um, one day was in Charlotte mm-hmm. and then one day was in uh, Burbank on the back lot at Universal where there's an artificial lake one of the places they had filmed one of the Jaws sequels. And they Went to such great effort and expense to make this movie look real. They went to the desert in Arizona, where the airline had stored several retired airliners, mm-hmm. and they got two complete Airbus A320s that had been stored in the desert that US Airways had flown, and trucked them, took wings off, trucked them to Burbank. They put one back together in this artificial tank to use for some of the rescue scenes, and they they cut the fuselage off, off the cockpit section of the other one to put it on a sound stage hmm. uh, in the studio to film the interior cockpit scenes and we, we got a chance to watch one day of filming at the at the lake
0: that must have been so surreal I mean when you watch these like, when you watch these movies do you I mean you, and you, even if you watch Tom Hanks do you feel like you're watching like yourself or uh, an impersonation of yourself or does he just kind of have the es- did he capture kind of the essence of the situation and that's what you, you it
2: seems like to uh, you? yes I mean, both It it was surreal that that's the we use that word a lot we we use surreal as yeah. a family to describe the aftermath of the flight uh, the sudden notoriety and we also use that word to describe the first time we saw the film before its release when it had just been completed mm-hmm. uh in burbank we watched it in private screening it, it was surreal um it, it was almost an out-of-body experience, watching someone on screen say, in many cases, verbatim words that I had said to someone or we had yeah. said to each other. Um, it took some getting used to it. it. When the film was finished, after we watched it for the first time, we were very quiet. There were just the four of us in the in this theater. Uh, and it took us a while. We actually flew home and, and it was at dinner that night where. My younger daughter, who's always the one who does this, says, So we're going to talk about what just happened or what. <laughs> uh, and then we had the most uh, in, interesting, sometimes funny, but wide ranging discussion about all the ways that it made us feel. But it took some time for us to think about how it made us feel and yeah. put it into words. That's heavy stuff. But and, then the second time we watched it, um, it was more of a typical movie going experience. And then uh, we watched it at the uh, premiere in New York. And that was the first time we had seen it with an audience and hearing and seeing the audience's reaction to it also was very illuminating. And and each time we would see it, we would see things that we had missed the first time.
0: I remember in the beginning of the film, there's kind of a theme going through. They had these kind of almost uh, night, a nightmare sequence of, of your character kind of having dreams about accidents and crashing. Was that a kind of a device, or did you is that something that you experienced as a, as a pilot?
2: Uh, a bit of both. Jeff and I, and, and I'm sure the flight attendants all had... Nightmares in the first few nights. It mm-hmm. was such a traumatic experience. We were ex- experiencing post traumatic stress disorder. Um, we couldn't sleep more than thirty or forty five minutes at a time for for the first few nights. We couldn't shut our brains off. The constant second guessing and what ifing. And I would try to in those first few days. I tried to read. Uh, an, an article, I'd I'd end up rereading the same sentence five times, mm-hmm. never fully com- comprehending it, and finally giving up. Um, at, at night, you know, when you're alone with your thoughts and the, you know, the and the demons come, you know, you just you can't shut it off, and it's disturbing. But I never had. I don't remember what my dreams were about, but I'm sure that they weren't about a 9/11 style, you know, crashing into high-rise this sort of a thing. I, I couldn't tell you what they were, but they were, I'm sure, disturbing and, and about the possibilities of, that we faced that day uh, or my responsibility and my worry that I had completed them. You know, I, I, I accounted for everybody. I had someone somehow fallen in the river and drowned, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, those were my concerns.
0: Did the trauma eventually, how did that trauma
2: subside? With time, you know, with processing it, thinking about it, talking about it, writing about it. Um, you know, people ultimately can be resilient, but it, uh, it took some time, you know, Myra, re- I, 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 run, I go to the gym, mm-hmm. my resting pulse is normally, you know, in the fifties or sixties. Uh, and after this event, uh, it was 124 hours a day. Wow. Uh, my breast, my resting blood pressures don't play, you know, one way to over 68 for 10 weeks, it was one sixty over hundred, even taking blood pressure medication, um, so, but, um, you know, you you gradually get better, you gradually sleep a little bit more, uh, but it, it probably took me two or three months to get my sleep cycle back to where I could sleep through the night again. Um, and but and I, I wanted to go back to flying, it was important that I did, but I couldn't, of course, until all those issues had been resolved, and uh, until I'd been, you know, gone back in the flight simulator and, and gotten recurrent and Recertified, and then once I did, then I made it a point to fly again with our first officer from the Hudson flight, Jeff Skiles. And then the next year, when a year after the flight, after thirty years at the airline, I I took my retirement flight and I retired. I made it a point to fly again with Jeff. So,
0: what was that first? What was your uh, first flight back in the saddle? Like
2: you know, people often ask me that, assuming that it was difficult. It wasn't at all. Um, First of all, it's something I love. It's a lifelong passion, and I'd done it my whole life. Uh, so it was like going home. It was like putting on a favorite pair of jeans. But I've got to say, though, that the very first flight I had when I went back to work, and I saw some birds go by near us, and it, it it was it definitely got my attention. You yeah. Know, I, until I sort of came became a little bit more desensitized to to an occasional bird presence.
0: Did the passengers on the flight knew who was flying the plane?
2: Yeah, they they would see me and they would find out. In fact, that became sort of a disrupting issue for a while that's part of why I retired I um, the airline gave me a flexible schedule for a while to get things done in that immediate aftermath when I mm-hmm. came back to work um, and I would always announce myself on the PA and I remember one of the first flights I had when I said ladies and gentlemen this is Captain Sullenberger and the U Tier I learned to wait a few seconds give it a few beats before I said anything else where it would be obscured by you know, the noise from the cabin that must have been fun well, yeah, it was just different, you know. It was it was something I wasn't used to. But yeah, it's. Um, I guess I would describe the entire process this way: that um, the the intensity of being a world recognized public figure is so inten- so extreme. Thank goodness it was for something good. Yes. If it were for doing something bad, if my name were Madoff, for example, I could not imagine how awful that would be. Because just having it for a good thing, where people want to say hi to you, is overwhelming at times. Uh, if it were something
0: bad, it'd be unbearable. I know you're doing self-driving car stuff. What what's kind of your what's your prediction for the for that in the future?
2: Oh gosh, predictions are always tough. Uh, I, I will say that um, it, the industry seems to be in a race. They seem to be determined to have autonomous vehicles on the road uh, everywhere as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And I tell them the same thing I told an audience at the Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral um, when they were talking about developing the next space vehicles. It's much more important to get it right than it is to get it fast. Mm -hmm. My concern is that as vehicles become more autonomous, we're going to see some of the unintended consequences happen with vehicles that we've seen happen with increasing automation use in, in, in airplanes. That is, that the more technology people depend upon, the less engaged they are with the process of being an operator of the vehicle, and the less likely they are to be able to quickly and effectively intervene if they must. So if we're going to really have autonomous vehicles, then they need to be so good that human intervention is never necessary, and that's going to be an extraordinarily high bar. I'm not sure it's one that's reachable in the near
0: term. So you think that with all these, like, uh, the autonomous driving, or at least the features like automatic braking and yeah. stuff, it's kind of like uh, how the belts people started driving faster when they were
2: wearing seatbelts yeah, so, in, in the beginning. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in favor of the driver-assisted technology. I'm in favor of lane departure warnings. I'm in favor of automatic braking. I'm in favor of people driving their car are still... Be, being well-trained to do it, being engaged and alert, not distracted and not impaired, and having technology help you. And if you're a good driver, the technology would never be needed. But if you're not, or if if you're a good driver and you're momentarily distracted or something happens, something surprises you, then the technology may help save you. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that if people in autonomous vehicles that still require some engagement feel like the technology is good enough that they don't have to pay attention, that they can be putting their makeup on or reading a newspaper or eating or asleep while their vehicle drives them there and and, and something happens and they suddenly have to intervene, they're probably not going to be able to. Yeah. So we need, we need to, I, I think there's a great uh, benefit to having driver assistance behavior that makes up for some of the inadequacies of driver behavior. Uh, But if people feel like they're invulnerable, and no matter what they do, no matter how careless they are, no matter how uninvolved they are, no matter how impaired they are, uh, that the technology will save them, it might not. So I think it's this transition zone, Mm -hmm. we're on the way to some ultimate technology that would need intervention, that we get in a lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, it's all your neighbors out there in San Francisco who are reading the paper and their Teslas as they go down, uh, down the highway.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's just craziness. <laughs> um, and, and we're going to go and see more of that, I'm afraid, uh, because the, these companies are rushing to get their technology on the road without fully understanding the consequences. I think also, w- the in order to have a, uh, these vehicles learn just as drivers do from experiences. We need to have big data sets. So basically, we still need to keep everybody and their vehicle cyber safe, but there needs to be a way for each vehicle to learn from the experiences of every vehicle. And then we'll have a big enough data set to quickly teach your vehicle about vehicles in Sweden or New York or somewhere else, and and not have to have your own vehicle learn from its own mistakes, because that's gonna take too long and be too risky. But I, the other concern is I think these companies are using the public as unwitting, unwilling guinea pigs when they put these vehicles on the road. Yeah. And that's, that's a legal and moral issue ultimately that they seem not to be addressing.
0: Yeah, like you said before, I think uh, a lot of these things we got smart about with airplanes were paid for in blood, which is very poignant. And you know, hopefully you know, these companies aren't doing that with, uh, with, uh, with us out in the road. Just for the audience, could you give me a a Captain Sullenberger announcement right now as if we're uh, taking off?
2: Well, I'll I'll do you one better. Um, Since um, I am a safety advocate, and especially now that I'm using my bully pulpit, to have a greater voice about things I've cared about my whole life, including the safety of the traveling public by every means of transport, including our personal automobiles, let me make a, a new announcement for you. Sounds good ladies and gentlemen this is your captain speaking uh, when you travel on an airplane you're in good hands and you are required to have your personal electronic devices in such a way that they will not affect the airplane during certain phases of flight let me remind you that when you drive your car to or from the airport or anywhere else for that matter if you choose to use your personal electronic devices while you're the driver you're putting your own Amusement, your own curiosity, your own personal needs ahead of the welfare of those all around you. That's a stupid and selfish thing to do. You know, we have a lot of threats in our lives, whether it's a a concern about terrorism or falling in the bathtub. But if you really understand relative risks, if you really understand safety, you'll know that for each of us, no matter what our lives are like, the one most important choice we could make that would do the most good, that would save the most lives, is having the discipline, having the integrity to never use your phone while you're driving. You owe it to those around you.
0: I think that's a perfect place to end it. Um, Captain Sully, thank you so much for uh, joining us today.
2: Great to be with you.
0: That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com.
3: 2017 was a great year for us here at Podcast One, and we hope it was a great year for you. We launched new
0: shows with Caitlin Bristow, Jim Harbaugh, Dick Enberg, and Randy Jackson. We've had some amazing
3: guests up by some of our shows, like Brian Cranston on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. Julia Louis-Dreyfus on all of the above with Norman Lear. And Jason Bateman on Spike's Car Radio with Spike Ferriston.
1: We are looking forward to a bright 2018 with new shows coming online, like MySpace Home Anderson. And we are
3: welcoming back Dennis Miller to the podcast scene.
1: This is Heather Dubrow. Happy holidays. Cheers.
3: I'm Caitlin Bristow and I want to wish you Happy Holidays Hey guys, it's Kelsey Knight from the Lady Gang Happy Holidays We'll see you in the new year
1: From all of us here at Podcast One We want to wish you a very happy holiday And a happy new year When you're wearing the right outfit It feels good Like good hair day kind of good Phone charge to 100% good Getting dressed can feel just like that When you have a trunk club stylist Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories We also teach you how to style them and since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at TrunkClub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue
0: with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying. And the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for
2: these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs.
0: Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.